You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Fox. So the same Hi, and welcome to episode 238, I think, of the Christian Humanist Podcast. I'm your host for today. My name is Michael Farmer. I'm an assistant professor of English at Crown College in St. Bonifacius, Minnesota. Joining me today is David Grubbs, who is an assistant professor of English at Houston Baptist University in Houston, Texas. Grubbs, how's it going? Pretty well, sir. The uh, trees are assaulting me with their pollens, but, but I continue to persevere. The high tomorrow here is 23. <laughs> I'd give the I'd uh, I'd trade it for the pollen right now. I would too. <laughs> uh, the the other voice you hear is our special guest for today. Nathan Gilmore is otherwise occupied. So given that we're talking about sci-fi, we brought on uh, Christina Bieber Lake, who's the Clyde S. Kilby Professor of English at Wheaton University, Wheaton College. Hello. How's it going? I'm doing very well, except I'm freezing. Oh, so it's cold in Chicago too. Very. Well, our, our topic for today is the 1944 suspense episode, Donovan's Brain, which I first heard when I was in sixth grade and which scared the absolute crap out of me at the time. So uh, I'm interested to see if you guys were scared by it as well. Uh, but first, uh, the, Donovan's Brain was a novel and a movie, but I think it's pretty reasonable to say that it's most famous for being this double episode of Suspense, which is a show that outside of the world of old-time radio enthusiasts is largely known for airing this adaptation of Donovan's Brain. David, could you tell us briefly about Suspense and its place in radio history? Sure. Suspense was a pretty long-running radio drama anthology show. It was uh, it was produced by CBS. It ran from 1942 to 1962. I kind of scrolled through there, and it didn't look like there were any breaks. It's actually unusual for it to have run that long. Uh, a lot of times, if you're looking at old-time radio series, there will be gaps of years, sometimes decades, and as uh, uh, relationships with sponsors fall through, as studios fall through, and also World War II affected a lot of that stuff. But... Uh, the suspense was was running all through World War II and then kept on going um, well into the era of television. Had 947 episodes, over 750 di- distinct stories, um, if you subtract the remakes or the two-part uh, stories. Uh, it was famous, especially in its in its heyday in the 40s and 50s, for having really well-known actors. Orson Welles is in this one as as. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure we'll be talking about him. Uh, he, and he was at this point in that kind of early stage of his career. He was only a couple years away from Citizen Kane. Um, only a few more years, uh, just a few more years before that was his really famous War of the Worlds radio drama, which, you know, started riots. Uh, Cary Grant was on Suspense, Peter Lorre, people like that. Uh, Vincent Price is on the episode after this one, as Orson Welles so kindly tells us at the end of it. 
there were a variety of genres. All of them are focused on suspense, kind of generally conceived, but they could be... Now the name makes sense. Yes. <laughs> uh, it could be spy stories, crime stories, um, uh, set in historical periods, set in the current era, science fiction, what we would call horror. Uh, it, it, it ranged all over the place. A number of them were original stories. Some of them were adaptations of fiction, sometimes even very well-known fiction. Uh, this is the adaptation of a novel. Um, those are those are the sorts of things uh, that I think it's relevant to know. This was a big show, an important show, a widely listened to show, and one that that uh, endured uh, for for years after that. And you can find it uh, at archive.org, where um, many 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 episodes still survive. Occasionally you'll find uh, an episode that was a two-parter and we've only got one half and uh, That's very sad. Some things are lost to the ages But uh, as, as far as old-time radio goes, this is one of the better preserved ones It's also one of the better shows. I mean, I, I listen to a lot of radio drama and Suspense is right up there with the best. I would say 80% of suspense episodes are good to great I Christina, agree. do you have any history with suspense? Absolutely zero. This is the only thing I've heard. All right. Well, then let's talk about Donovan's brain itself, uh, which is pretty difficult to talk about without talking about the Frankenstein myth, uh, which it's pretty clearly a version. Christina, you guessed it on Book of Nature in October to talk about the 90, uh, 1931 film version of Frankenstein. You're giving a lecture on the novel in a few weeks yes. at the Christianity and Lit conference. It seems natural for me to ask you how this program conforms and adapts Frankenstein, Well, the novel or the film. Yes. Um, obviously, the trope of the mad scientist uh, it comes directly out of Frankenstein, and I always take every opportunity that I have to remind our listeners that uh, a woman invented science fiction. So there you go. So anything that came out of sci-fi uh, that comes out in sci-fi has some sort of connection to Frankenstein. So be that as it's made, this has a, a direct link because of this idea of this mad scientist who says, I'm going to take a human body part and use it to animate life that's in my own control and there's even a moment on the radio version where he says, it's conscious, and it's sort of like, it's alive, you know, from the movie version of, of Frankenstein. It seemed to have even the same intonations. So um, beyond that, there's a lot of divergences that are actually quite interesting, and I'm sure we'll talk about uh, those. But um, the, the similarities being just mostly animating through science, uh, a human body part, and then um, the also the connection between Patrick and his wife is similar to the one between uh, between Victor and his wife in creepy ways yeah uh, it's not a it's not <laughs> a beautiful vision of human relationships in the story I have to say no indeed and I'd love to talk about that these sort of um, carting your woman off to the your, your wife off to the insane asylum idea I, I'm uh, I'm also interested in the way that it gets this from the film and not the novel, as far as I can remember. The the way that it suggests that if you take the brain from a evil person and put it into a regular person's body, that person will also be evil. That, that's not in the novel. That is, that, is, is that correct? That is not in the novel. That was all from the movie. 
And it's really funny because he has these choice of brains, right? And he drops the good one and it shatters on the floor, if I'm remembering that right. Isn't that right? And, and um, I think that's yeah. right, yeah. And then, and then he's left with the criminal brain, sort of like, oh, well, I dropped the nice brain. I'm like, I have the criminal brain. Here he just doesn't, <laughs> he clearly doesn't think that the, the moral capacity of the owner of the brain makes any difference, so he doesn't care. There's only one thing to say to that. Sure, sure, sure. <laughs> that's the part that scared yeah. me so much when i was a kid when i went, back, my and, next when I question. went back and listened yeah the the yes. the voice of donovan is is really uh i wouldn't say scary anymore but uncanny disturbing very disturbing yeah. mm-hmm. I mean, one thing to sort of keep in the back of your mind is for listeners to radio drama at this time they probably still had fresh memories of Orson Welles' brief stint as the voice of uh, the Shadow in the Shadow drama, um, in which uh, he's he's frequently doing kind of a creepy voice. Uh, he's adopting different voices as he as he uh, um, takes on disguises, things like that. Uh, Orson Welles' you know power as a voice actor is is one of the things that was well established by this point. Um, he's playing it to the hilt. I did not know he did The Shadow. I, I'm familiar with The Shadow. I've never heard any of those episodes, but of course I know about its place in cultural history, and so I did not know that was Orson Welles. He did uh, He did a couple of years in the 30s. Uh, there, there were several different actors who did uh, over, the, over the whole series, but in, in, in sort of the early stages when it had some of its... Um, first big impact Orson Welles is the voice of the shadow mm, he's very good I mean that was one of the things that really struck me listening to this program is how good he was yes did he, do you know if he did Donovan's voice as well as Corey's I I was assuming I, he was yeah I mean given that there are scenes in which he transitions from one to the other yeah and the fact that I've heard him in the shadow do exactly that kind of kind of guttural gangster voice as he's putting on roles. Um, th- these are, I mean, dude has range. Yeah, I, I mean, obviously he's one of the, the great talents of the radio era and also made at least one good good movie. I haven't seen any of his other ones besides Citizen Kane. Yeah, I think I've only seen Citizen Kane myself. I've watched bits of his Macbeth. It was interesting, uh, but he was also a stage actor, uh, and he'd been he'd been working at drama in all three venues, and was well known in all three venues by the time he comes to this uh, to this radio drama. Um, he would be, I, I imagine he was uh, CBS probably saw him as a big get. Oh, I'm sure he was. Yeah. Was he in the Third Man? Was that Orson Welles? That was him. Yeah, yeah, I've seen that. That's good. He, um, one thing I don't know that people know is that he invented, for radio drama, he invented the voiceover narrative. Like, he was the first wow. person, I guess, probably on Mercury Theater, which was his radio show. Right. I think, I think he's the first person to ever do that on the radio. That's really interesting. So, an innovator in a lot of ways. And and we we get that first person voiceover narration here. Um, the 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 story opens with this exposition where we learn that what we're hearing is Patrick Corey's casebook. I, I'm not sure if he's writing or recording it, 
But the episode proper opens with him buying a capuchin monkey, which he then teaches to trust him. And as soon as it does, he jabs a scalpel that was terrible. into the monkey's brain. It's a pretty awesome it opening. Really thing, awful. I, <laughs> I think that opening foreshadows an awful lot of what happens on this program. Do you, do you agree with me, David? Yes. Oh, Never you ask want? Yes, no questions. <laughs> you want me to say more things, George? Sure. Uh, that 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 theme of the betrayal of trust uh, runs throughout the epi- uh, both episodes, and the climax of both episodes involves uh, recapitulates that scene. Um, Corey is emotionally distanced from the kind of proper human connections which he has in his life. He has a wife and he has a son. Those should be the strongest connections in the story. Um, and they are for the wife and the son, uh, but not for him, and yet he uses them. He uses those those proper human affections as a trap. Um, first to lure his wife into trapping her and in, in, in committing her to an insane asylum, and then in the second half, um, luring his his son into trusting him uh, in, into what is uh, at least uh, an, an attempt at a, well, a Dr. Frankenstein brain switch. Um, that, is, that is thwarted for reasons which we will unpack later on, but, but that notion of, of the betrayal of trust. Um, the real Donovan's brain is sort of that he's the mo- he's the monster on the poster if you will but the real monster is Patrick Corey and Patrick Corey's not only is his inhumanity but his manipulation of what ought to be the proper human ties to per- to pursue his inhuman ends of course that's what connects him directly back to Victor because that is what Shelley did with Victor Frankenstein was make him somebody who just didn't get it in terms of relations with humans, um, the closest people in his life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Though I don't think uh, Corey's rhetoric is quite so grandly Promethean, if I remember rightly. <laughs> yeah. Well, he's, he, has, he has pretty good rhetoric, though. Yes. Sometimes, but he also slips into this clinical thing where, yeah, yeah, yeah. You you see, it seems like he's persuaded by his jargon, and 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 everyone else is like, yeah, we don't understand what you're. He talks much more like a scientist and much less like a poet. Yes, is yes. One of the ideas that's explicitly at stake in Donovan's brain is what human life is and what it means. Christina, could you rehearse the various arguments between Corey and Schrott? Do, do either of them say anything particularly interesting, or is it just standard issue science fiction place setting? Well, it kind of is just standard issue uh, <laughs> science fiction. I mean, it's really funny because Schott's like, you and your mechanistic philosophy, you know, at the very beginning. <laughs> yep. and, and and that's about all that's really said about it. Um, and Victoria and I were listening to yes. it, and she, she rolled her eyes enormously and said, if you're too stupid for a Frankenstein. <laughs> <laughs> that's a great remark, um, because exactly, right? And, and it doesn't come up... As, as a sort of a worldview issue or an issue of what it means to be human uh, directly until the end when he's killing his son 
And that's what breaks through this bizarre, I don't know how the brain has a hold of his body, you know, exactly. Of course, that's the weirdest thing. But it, the fact that he recognizes he's killing his son, it, it impacted him. And so there's that little speech about, well, the divine spark that's in everybody uh, woke me up to this uh, fact that I was doing this thing. But then I couldn't do anything about it, really. What does he think life is at the beginning of this episode? That's a great question. I think he's not even thinking about it. Um, he, I mean, of course, what's behind all of these science fiction um, stories is a kind of a posthumanism, right, where it's uh, life is defined by br- the brain and information patterns rather than material embodiment, right, that you wouldn't even have the premise of Donovan's brain if it wasn't for the fact you can think of life that way, right? So, right. so he clearly does. Um, and he's the one saying, you know, I'm giving it. The one guy's shot is saying, you're killing him. And he's saying, no, I'm giving him life, you know, and then I'm going to do other things to make the brain grow extra cells and, and things like that. Well, you only can do that if you think that the brain is really where life is located, but the, the program kind of backs him up on that, right? Because yes. the issue is not that it didn't work. It's that it worked and, and they picked the wrong guy to do it with. Exactly. And that is one of those examples that Kate Hales, for instance, in that book, How We Became Posthuman, would say that's an example of we just think that way now. We don't even, you know, stop to make that an issue. Do you see what I'm saying? That do, yeah, yeah, so it, of course it's going to work because that really is where life is. And why wouldn't that be able to be conscious? And why wouldn't, you know? And so even though Mary Shelley has that in Frankenstein in some way, right, that the brain is is uh, where life is, um, it's, it's a different kind of thing. It's not like you can take that brain out of somebody. That only happens in the movie, right? Frank, Dr. Frankenstein in the book doesn't actually take that brain out of the head, Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And when the monster he creates is not like a continuation of a serial killer of, of Donovan, the monster he creates is a new person that he fails to have responsibility for. Exactly. And it's a new person that everything in the text seems to indicate had a whole head and a brain. Right. I don't know how. Or does he take a. I don't know. You've read it since I yeah, have. Sure. Uh, yeah. And I'm just. I'm trying. Now all these things kind of are melding together in my mind and I can't. Right. Remember, I mean, there must be some kind of cranial incision, but I'm, I, I'm not sure he took out a complete brain and put it in. I'd have to look that up. Can I ask a question? And I, there's a detail at the end of the show that I wasn't really quite sure what I was supposed to be making of it. There's that voiceover at the end that's not Corey, but is like newsman. I Anyway, yes, the voiceover. Yes, the voiceover at the end that says that in sort of looking at the scene, there were the remains of this brain that had been apparently dead and decaying for three months. So are they are they actually saying that the that the experiment didn't work? I mean, what what was I what were what were we supposed to make of that detail? Was this a haunting the whole time and we just didn't know it Hmm. Or, or what? That never occurred to me. But I don't know. I mean, I just assumed that they found the bodies later. Okay. Uh, but so. that I could be wrong about that. I just, wow, what do you think, Michael? I thought maybe the brain, 
you know, t- taken away from the machine, resumed its rotting process faster. I don't know. I didn't. I didn't really think about that until huh. David just said it. Yeah, so. like like Dracula when you stake him and he just like decays instantly. Right, right. If it, but I, I mean, if what you're saying is correct, the the play is radically different. Well, it it felt like a mis it felt like a misfired twist at the end. Like I was like like that that revelation was supposed to make this big difference, but I wasn't quite sure what big difference it was supposed to be. So I I just read it in a kind of uh, doylean manner as because they can't show the murder, they can't show you exactly what's happening in that final scene. They've got to have a voiceover at the end to describe it, and maybe it's just done kind of ham-fistedly because it had to. Be. It had to be there, right? They have no right. other way of telling that part of the story. Yeah, I mean that. I made assume sense. neither of you have read the novel. No. Mm, no. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> yeah, I don't. Ha- I don't have enough time to to read Donovan's brain the novel. I'm afraid. <laughs> Oh, I'm wondering yeah. if Margaret Atwood, Margaret Atwood was influenced by this. It's one of those things that she mentioned kind of freaked her out as a young person. And now I'm wondering if she read the novel or if it was just the radio program that she heard. That's a good question. Yeah. Do, you see, do you see echoes of this in Atwood's work? Oh, of course, because there's echoes of what Shelley's critique uh, was like uh, t- as well. And, and Atwood picks that up in Oryx and Crake in that whole series where she talks about the type of people and the type the type of person like Crake who would be willing to say, I'm going to make this whole new creation of people and, and use science to do that. And I don't care about people who are alive right now. They can all die. You know, I mean, this is definitely something, a theme that she addressed um, quite extensively. And then even in the handmaid handmaid's tale, you know, and other things like that, this kind of speculative world uh, was very interesting to her from the beginning. I would really like to use this opportunity. Um, it's just going to have to be uh, unnatural now, so I'll just bring it back around to talk about the Google Immortality program, which I know Christina, you and I are both very interested in. Did you did you find yourself thinking of that when you were listening to this program? Um, not that per se. I think about um, transhumanism though all the time. I mean, and that's the it's a related thing. I don't know a whole lot about the Google thing itself, um, but I know a lot about transhumanism and the effort to stop aging and, you know, download your consciousness into a computer like Ray Kurzweil wants to do. So yeah, I, I think about that stuff all the time because it's all, and it all goes back to Frankenstein, right? It's this effort to control nature. And I think underneath it all, and this is what I'm going to be talking about next week in Tennessee, is a fear of death and a desire to control that which can't be controlled, which comes out of fear um, of death and other things. And, and, and that's why I think the, it's so fascinating. If that's really the thing that drives you the most is you want to be in control and you're afraid of losing control, whatever always happens is you get punished by losing control, right? So you get punished by right. the thing that you are most afraid of. Yeah. Definitely nobody should log on to the computer where Kurzweil uploads his consciousness. Please. <laughs> Lord have mercy on us all. Because after he does that, then he's going to take his father's DNA and resuscitate his father. Wow. Huh. I, I say if you're going to bring back one of those guys, do Robert Moog. Sorry, that's a keyboard joke. It's not a very good one. I don't know who that is. 
<laughs> he, he had the Moog synthesizer. Oh, like the oh, Kurtz. Anyway, oh, I'm sorry. Oh. It's, a, it's, a, it's a really lame joke. That's okay. Yeah, uh, Donovan's brain is set. Donovan's brain is set in the world of mid-century medicine. Uh, it must have been a very exciting time to be a doctor, but this program seems pretty ambivalent about modern medicine. Uh, what's going on there, David? Well, you've got two different doctors on this. Well, three doctors on the stage, actually, if uh, if you count the son, uh, David. The there's the the older doctor. Uh, Schrott? Is that is that how you said his name? I like I I, could, I was never quite sure what name I was hearing when I was listening to the show, and then you sent the notes. I had the same problem. Schrott. Yes, I had to look it up. Yeah. Um. So there's there's Schrott. He's sort of a doctor of the old school. Um. Probably swore to take to do no harm. You know. Uh. Whereas Doctor Corey is much more on the scientific research side of medicine. Uh, and he very like he, he can be called upon to do to perform cyan, uh, me- medical procedures that would heal if done properly. Uh, but his heart isn't in that. Uh, he's, he's not interested in that side of it. Uh, for him, even even the human lives that he's touching are just tools in this inevitable progress of and growth of scientific knowledge, which, which seems to be, that's the good that he serves. Um, his motives are not in that, in, in that kind of old school sense, humane motives. It's not medicine for the sake of humanity, but humanity for the sake of, of a kind of ultimate knowledge. Um, that's, that's one of the, one of the big issues here. So there's that, that suspicion of the, of that scientific urge that seems to push, um, in inhumane directions. There's also the ways that he masks the moral significance of his actions with scientific jargon, um, that, that, that methodical and initially very dry, but then as it goes, it gets more and more nervous um, as, as he's kind of describing point by point the procedure in which what he's actually doing is killing his son. But he walks us through all the anatomy of it and what he's doing with which instruments. And um, we know what's going on. It's, it's, a kind of, it's a kind of dramatic irony in which the action is being described, but it's not being described in the language that would give us the moral significance of the action. And so that, that use of, of the jargon to mask the moral side um, is something that he, that he does throughout. Um, when he's got the little, the little monkey brain in the, in the jar and the, the brain waves start to fluctuate and uh, they say, oh, it can, it can hear, it's awake. And he says, well, I wouldn't say aware, I wouldn't say thinking, I would say it's registering stimuli, right? The, you know, they're, they're, using, they're using words of, of human consciousness, of kind of human experience that leads to um, sort of moral the moral side of it. Um, he keeps it in this sort of purely instrumental scientific side. Values neutral. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just that he doesn't 
rightly judge what is the good. He also doesn't rightly judge evil. Um, even as he's growing in his knowledge of who William Donovan is or, or was in life, that doesn't actually alter his intentions to keep this brain alive, growing, and growing in its power. Um, even, even as he's saying, researching this man's biography leads me to think he's kind of a monster, he remains committed to keeping the monster alive and making it you know, more powerful so as to hypnotize him. Like Initially, he's like... Initially, he's just pleased that it's telepathically controlling his brain and his actions. And he knows that this man was, and and he says he was, he was evil. (laughs) Very casual about it. In this kind of, in this almost kind of a wistful way. You know, one might say he was evil. Sure, let's give him telepathy. But, I mean, part of that is he has this invincibility that scientists have, right? Yes. He, but because he can control life and death, he can control everything else, and so he doesn't have to. He doesn't have to worry about the state of his own soul, the state of his own personality. Really, I mean, you don't even have to get spiritual here. He's literally becoming another person. That's true. But, yeah, it's well, it's the the sense of of illusory distance that being an observer creates. Um, I think of uh, the the Hitchcock movie Rear Window in which the the photographer played by Jimmy Stewart uh, gets horribly injured as he's trying to photograph, I think it was a race. And, you know, the photographer, photographers are famously unaware of their bodies <laughs> as they put themselves into positions of peril in order to get the shot that they see through the camera. Mm. Um, this, you know, he as a scientist seems to have a similar a similar sense of of invulnerability or similar distance from the actual significance of his actions um he's just he's just here to watch you know so what harm will it do that's actually very similar to victor as well i mean i think you could make the strong case that victor frankenstein even in his reporting of what had happened through this letter still hasn't really learned what the core problems were, you know, in, even at the end. it's it, He's more worried about the consequences than he was about his original attitudes. I mean, there is definitely mm-hmm. some some evidence of, of, of that, but he doesn't thoroughly understand what went wrong and, and uh, his initial conditions that uh, his arrogance, for instance. Um, I don't think he has a thorough understanding of it. He certainly doesn't understand the ways he's failed Elizabeth, his wife, and and Donovan, uh, not Donovan, um, Patrick, Corey. Corey. Yeah, he has. Uh, I mean, he's a little bit apologetic to his wife, but for Pete's sake, he carted her off to the nut house. Yeah. And doesn't even yeah. and doesn't remember it. Um, well, that's supposed. She barely to be. seems to blame him. How did she get back? Here's a plot question. How did on earth did she get back from the madhouse to go confront did, him? Did she escape? Yeah. Did she, like, I mean, all of a sudden she's she just Margaret Atwood needs to write that book. There you go. Nice. Call her up. Yeah. I, I was just thinking about the shell game that you have to play as a materialist neuroscientist, right? Because you talk about the way he talks about the monkey as, as the the brain is just this collection of responses to stimuli. Well, it, to a materialist, that's all any brain is, right? Consciousness is a is a epiphenomenon. 
of 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 these kind of stimuli responses on the on the brain level exactly uh, but he has to think of his own brain not like that he thinks of himself as this heroic scientist instead of this uh this collection of stimuli and response exactly i mean just think about how eager he was when uh poor the original Donovan, um, before he died, he was just like, let's go get this other saw. <laughs> you know, he has absolutely no problem <laughs> with just saying, we're just going to cut his brain out. And the other guy's like, hey, wait a minute now. You're just going to go <laughs> to cut this guy's brain out. You're going to kill him. Oh, he's dead anyway. No big deal. Let's just, you know, chop his head off, you know, chop the head open. My goodness. Yeah, he's very, very yeah. cold-blooded. I also have to say about the saw, it's called a Geely saw. Like the terrible movie Geely with uh, Ben Affleck, but I couldn't hear what? it, and I kept thinking he was saying, "Bring me the GD saw." <laughs> I thought well, that's what called for. I did not know. <laughs> we mentioned the 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 wife being committed. Do do we want to talk about the way psychiatry features in this story? That was still a relatively young science in 1944. I would like to say something about that, because the more I think about it, the more I think that's probably what really frightened Margaret Atwood was listening to this and realizing this sort of just the understanding that this man, because he's a scientist and a doctor and a respected member of the community, can just go up and to this other psychiatrist and say, by the way, just commit her. You know, yeah. to sign a piece of paper and there she goes and she's completely powerless. And I can see a young Margaret Atwood, her imagination kind of working around that and just saying, like, that's not even the horror of the story. But it's really the horror for me, right, uh, is just thinking that that medical science is in that position where suddenly, you know, you have that much power over another person who's literally they're trying to convince everybody I am sane. And you can just imagine her in there going, yeah, well, he had this brain and it was... <laughs> And so, of course, they thought she was insane, right? Yeah. And, and that's a really horrifying thing that the, the horror of it, though, is kind of treated less seriously. I don't know, not less seriously, but it's less centralized. I, I, right. I really find it fascinating. And it, it puts this in a, in a line of descent, not just from Frankenstein, but from the yellow wallpaper the Charlotte Perkins Gilman story that everybody reads in well, yeah. see, Freshman Con. I don't think that, yeah, yeah, no, yeah, that, you mean a dissent. I thought you were for saying for a minute that it was disagreeing, but you're saying a dissent, not dissenting. It dissents yeah, yeah, from yes. it. That's its, that's its godmother. Absolutely. If, uh, if, if Frankenstein's its godfather. I agree. It, I, I really would like to see uh, Atwood write write a novel from that person. I mean, she does that, right? Didn't she rewrite The Tempest or something? She did, called Hagseed. Um, and this also is like Alias Grace, which plays on these same things about um, medical conditions and women. And that was recently made into a series that's actually quite good. Either I liked it a lot, too. Yeah. You, you, so you know what I'm saying? It's dealing with those same questions, the turn-of-the-century kind of um, problems with the medical view of women and um, who, whose word do you take for what's happening. And, you know, those, those issues become centralized in that. I thought the TV version of that was much better than The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. I agree. I agree totally. David, anything else to add about psychiatry? Well, the the way that psychiatry focuses on uh, mental and emotional realities that uh, 
in previous eras would have been treated as states of the soul or states of the spirit. Not that there's, you know, hasn't in, in, you know, in different eras of the past and in different cultures been uh, an understanding of the body's effect on those states, uh, like humoral theory in uh, the Middle Ages, uh, for instance, um, in which, you know, your, your moods are, are affected by these, uh, these, these temperamental, um, these fluids that are cycling through your body. Um, but nonetheless, uh, the, the way that um, these, these, these states are being perceived as mainly pathological um, disorders in this physical organ uh, versus psychology's emphasis on um, sort of human experience on the inside and the way that, that humans as thinking, feeling beings make sense of that experience. Uh, the, the, those, two, those two perspectives uh, in this story, uh, I, 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 th I think it's really interesting to, wa to, to watch the, the psychology of the man who thinks psychiatrically. <laughs> if, that, <laughs> if that makes sense. Um, because his, his own account of what's going on in brains... Um, does not seem to be accounting for the reality of what's going on in his own brain. If, I mean, if, if anyone is mad, he is. And yet, as we're kind of watching what, what sorts of things are happening to him, he is being affected from the outside. Um, he's, he's no more insane than she is, not in, the, not in the psychiatric sense. He is actually being influenced. Um, and this, the story that, the, that this that this drama tells is a story that his notion of science um, and, uh, and, and the notions of psychiatry can't tell, um, well, until they come up with a way of explaining telepathy. <laughs> <laughs> well, the mad scientist, as we've discussed, is one of the archetypes that Donovan's brain is playing with. Another is the evil businessman. Tell me about William H. Donovan and the program's view of evil, Christina. <laughs> it's so funny. I mean, it, it's sort of just a throwaway comment, it seems. Oh, he's one of the best men on Wall Street, the most powerful, brilliant, but he's evil. Because, of course, anybody coming from Wall Street is going to be evil and say, sure, sure, sure. And, and I'm going to be just, you know, grabbing onto things and wanting all kinds of power, right? Um, so the, the sort of facile connection between business men and power grubbing is interesting uh, because it's the same thing, obviously, with the scientist, the mad scientist in the effort for control and power. It's just on a different on a different platform, if you will. And so I thought that was such a in a way a kind of a weird choice. Right. I, I wonder what did you think about that, Michael, making him a businessman? Yeah, I, I do think it's it's interesting. It, it says at the end explicitly that Donovan wants to like control the world, that that's right. his goal here, right. taking over. Yeah. So, so there's, there's a kind of imperialism mm -hmm, to it as mm -hmm. well. It, I, I'm always interested when highly paid actors make movies and radio programs and whatnot about how evil it is to be rich. I yeah. Mean, well, it's very funny. How much, how much money did Orson Welles have at this point? And, and you know, what sort of horrible human being was he? Exactly. Well, 
And he's the horrible human being who, you know, a couple years before had made Citizen Kane. Yeah, that's true. I didn't even think about that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although, it, worth pointing out, he didn't write this. I, I don't think he, he adapted it. Uh, and, and I forget the name of the, the author of the, the novel. I don't know it. I don't think the I don't think the the show has a very clear idea of of what evil is, and and that's why that's why we can kind of laugh at the at the shorthand it gives you for for Donovan being evil. Oh, he's this brilliant mind. Oh, and also he's evil. It, it does that because evil is just a word to it. Is the impression I get? That's that it, insightful. Yes. Well, it, hmm. we almost don't have time to develop that. You know, right, right. Um, They're already having to do two episodes. Yeah, yeah. Don- Donovan's that the evil of William H. Donovan is not the evil that the I think the story's mainly interested in, though. Um, I mean, some of it gets revealed in in these kind of visions that Corey has of these 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 dreams that are half apocalyptic, half fascist. Um, with yes. the idea of yes. the, the the single man standing above all humanity, uh, that could, I mean it's it's you know it's the forties, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. So you know we've got you know the 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 post uh, post Great Depression. It's the big it's the big business Wall Street guy who talks like a radio show gangster and has dreams of being Hitler. Right, so this is like all the broad brush evil over here. He's also vaguely foreign. <laughs> right. Isn't isn't he from Russia or something? I I think I think he it may be in a different adaptation of it. I, I listened to two of them, but I I think it's explicitly stated that he's not from the United States. Of course. <laughs> Foreigners. Uh, toward the end of the program, there's a really weird, unexpected moment where Corey starts to talk about Abraham and Isaac. Uh, I, I, I was very surprised and confused by this. David, would you say there's a genuine religious undercurrent to the story, or is this more a place setting? Man, there really wants to be, doesn't there? Mm-hmm. I mean, the the allusion to Abraham and Isaac, the allusion to Christ and Gethsemane. Uh, the Mount of Olives, isn't that the name of the of the mm-hmm. mental institution? It was it. I have on my notes. I have yes. Mount of Olives with an exclamation point. I think it must be the mental institution. It's the burial place for the um, corpses gotcha. at the end. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> Not subtle. Um, oh gosh, the notion of sparks of, of the divine, the uh, the old doctors' references to. Uh, humans being more than material. All these things have been put into the conversation. He prays for grace um, at the end. Yeah, but may God have mercy on my soul, which, you know, part of me was like, may God have mercy on the soul, which I didn't believe in until about 30 seconds ago. May God have mercy on my responses to stimuli. <laughs> <laughs> You know, right. I want to say something, too, about the weird morality. Remember, we have been talking about how it doesn't seem like he really understands how evil he really is. The beginning of the part two of the program was really this strange kind of him saying, I want you to understand so that you can, can even condone the and be sympathetic for the conditions that brought me to this crime. 
And I'm thinking, um, have you not figured out that you're the conditions that brought you to this crime? You know, <laughs> and I just thought that was stunning. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he doesn't have any kind of real repentance. It's just kind of like Victor Frankenstein, uh, regret for what has happened. More. I think that's a great point. Man, that was a lot of crazy stuff, you guys. Sorry. Ah. <laughs> My know, bad. Uh, because of the inexplicable reasons that um, my mp3 player just does what it does i actually listened to these episodes out of order and didn't realize it uh wait really you listened to the second half first i listened to the second half first and i didn't know it was the second half um for whatever reason the but he says at the beginning of the second half that it's the second half didn't that doesn't he I know. I wasn't listening closely. I was driving. I was still thinking about Roma wine and how it makes you <laughs> gonna say about and Roma how it wine. Makes us think about Cuma. Yeah, Cuba. Cuba. Because <laughs> Cuba in Cuba, that's what they drink. That's right. Yeah. There's no reason. There's no reason for you to be in awe of the sea around Cuba. What you should be in awe of is your country's own winemaking facilities. <laughs> that was Which very they, funny. Yeah, why why import your wine when you could drink our domestic wine, which other people import? So it's kind of imported. <laughs> anyway. Roma so, wine, by the way, seems to have fallen off the face of the planet. Looked it uh, up, too, because I was very curious, and I found a little article about that, that it mm-hmm. had some problems in the 70s and got purchased, and there was a lawsuit and something else. And... <laughs> Did it involve brains? No, it did not. At, at least it, they didn't <laughs> indicate what it involved. So, you know. Listening to this vintage of uh, suspense always makes me want red wine, though. Of course. Yeah. Well, I'm, I'm going to make the, be- the best stab at some kind of religious significance that I can. Uh, the, the moment in which he kills his son is the moment in which he realizes... That that is his son, that that is actually the primary important reality in that moment. Um, it's it's the thing at the back of his mind that's disrupting the dialogue of scientific jargon um, with which he narrates his own uh, his own murder of his son. Um, it's it's this moment when he suddenly becomes aware of the son as the son, um, so that. What's what's interesting, I, I think, is is this depiction of a kind of salvation as a restoration of proper human relatedness. Um, the fact that in the moment that he loses his son, he actually realizes he's lost his son. That is the thing that that kind of brings him to a proper humanity by bringing him to a proper relationship to other humans. Um, that this is given other sort of religious significance by the reference to Abraham and Isaac or, um, or Christ in Gethsemane. Those are, I, 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 I don't understand the function of those because is he God in that story? I'm, I'm not quite sure. Um, but, the, but the thing that actually happens is that um, these, these, these relationships that had not been important from the very beginning when he stabs the sweet monkey. Um, now they are. And, uh, he, he has, um, 
gotten back something that he'd lost and didn't miss. Mm -hmm. That's my best effort. I think that's pretty good. I will point out that 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 religious reference is very unusual. I've listened to a lot of episodes of Suspense, and I've never heard anything that blatant. I don't know if it's right out of the novel or what, but it's not like they made religious references like that all the time. I think most of these old radio shows go out of their way not to mention religion. So it really pricked my ears up. I bet it's in the novel. I bet it is. That makes sense. And it certainly sounds grand as he's saying it. It's still Orson Welles, right? You know, it it takes a few seconds for you to realize that none of what he's just said actually, like, you can't parse it. (laughs) Well, I mean, Orson Welles makes frozen peas sound grand, right? That's, that's fair. Uh, there's also the, the visions of false, false apocalypse that come with, uh, with Donovan's brain, the idea of, of, of a kind of a future judgment with one standing in judgment over all humanity, except that's William Donovan having been unnaturally granted godlike status and immortality and power, um, by science. Um, I don't know that, that there, there's that, that other little, um, that other theological threat of a sort of a, a coming uh, false apocalypse of our own making. Hmm. Yeah, he kept saying things like, oh, I know there's some grand plan. I, uh, Donovan's going to reveal the grand plan. And that, that, yeah. It did have that kind of apocalyptic feel to it. Well, fortunately, Donovan gets squished all over the floor, so... Yay. Yay. <laughs> Do you kind of wish you'd got to hear it? I don't know how the, the, the <laughs> foley would have... <laughs> Did you get that? I just made that with my mouth. Pretty good, huh? Very good. That, that's, 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 that's cool. You, you have a future in old-time radio. I was once, uh, I was radio. once an 8-year-old eight, boy. <laughs> <laughs> Well, as we uh, as we close out the show, I'd like to go around the horn and talk about other elements of Donovan's brain that are meaningful or interesting or whatever. Uh, Christina, uh, I'll let you go first. Okay. Well, my son's name is Donovan, so there were parts of this recording that were a little funnier than they for me than they would be for anybody else. <laughs> Let's just put it that way, because there's one point when the woman comes back and and. And uh, she says, I got, you know, put away to this insane asylum. And, and he's like, I did not do that. And she said, Donovan had me committed to a madhouse. And I thought, oh, my goodness, that's my life. <laughs> Ouch. Well, you know, come on, parent of a 12-year-old boy. Do you feel like you're in a madhouse sometimes? And no. Sure. I mean, maybe it would be better to be. Sometimes it feels that way. Three yep. meals somebody yep. else prepares for you. Oh man, I mean, I've just got five, three, and two. I can't imagine. I can't imagine the issues that come along that will come along in six years. All fun. No, but oh, it's good. it's 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 funny because <laughs> I I didn't know about um, this uh, radio program until Donovan was about six. So obviously, there's no relation with me naming him. I, I if I had known about it, I probably wouldn't have named him Donovan. Um, now that I think about it, no, no, I would, I would imagine you would not. Yeah. I would be a little afraid of that. Um, so it it just, it's so funny because, you know, he, he does have autism. So 
there are issues with his brain. So it's just kind of a funny thing. Whenever we hear the title of this story, it's always Donovan's brain, you know, Donovan's brain is ruling our house. Donovan's brain is this. And so it's, it's always going to be that way for us. It's so bizarre. Grubs, what else did you notice? Oh man, the uh, I want to I want to make a pitch for the 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 wife and the son. Um, in in so many ways, I think their performance could kind of fall out, you know, fall out of focus. Less 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 uh, less uh, less the wife. Um, she's she's much much more prominent. Um, but the sun could fall out, could fall out of it. And something that I didn't notice until I'd listened through it the second time, I just hadn't even picked up on it. Um, that the son was, uh, himself in medical school, um, was, it was himself a doctor who was, who was proceeding in that same, uh, in that same line. Um, yeah, the, their, their, their performances, uh, their performances I appreciated. Uh, but also, uh, if if this episode could get some listeners into old time radio, um, I think that would be an an added benefit. Um, they, David, they, David, yes, can you can you do the uh, woo 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 brain sound? That might really impel people to listen to. It. <laughs> <laughs> very good. That that is very that is very excellent. Good. Yeah, like it sounds like that. If if anybody is interested in listening to more of these old radio dramas, there is a uh, there's a series of podcast feeds for Relic Radio. Oh, uh, there's one called Strange Tales and The Horror and Oh wow! Uh, so they've got them divided up by uh, by genre, obviously. So yeah. If if anybody is interested in that stuff, you, uh, you know, it is read, readily available. You know, it's, and curated, so you don't have to go dig through the archives. It's fascinating, yeah. really, because when you're listening to a radio program, there really is a different level of suspense and horror to it because you can't see. It all has to come out of your imagination. So there are some parallels between listening to a program and reading a book, as opposed to having it all displayed for you on screen you know and i yeah. and i think we kind of miss that in our culture in some ways that there that there's a special niche not unlike the special niche that say graphic novels fill right there there are things that yeah. the radio program can do that no other genre can do absolutely well, and especially in the in the '40s and '50s before television, I guess not the '50s in the, in the '40s before television really kicked off. This is where this is where all the good writers went. Exactly. Yeah, that, there's some really top top notch stuff out there. You know, just you know, just lying around freely available. Um, I also have to give my pitch for the 1970s revival of radio drama. I don't know what happened in the 70s, but there were three or four big programs. There was one called uh, The Zero Hour, which was hosted by Rod Serling from The Twilight Zone. Oh. Uh, they'd do a whole week of one plot, so it would be it would be a two-and-a-half-hour episode, essentially. And then there I've... was another one called... You, have you heard that one? I've never heard of that at all. I didn't know there was a revival of radio programs in the 70s. 
Yeah, there That's was one cool. called CBS Radio Mystery Theater that ran for oh. like 3,000 episodes or something. Do you, do you remember? That was huge. So you may remember that one. Well, you know, it's so interesting. It's like a precursor to podcasting sort of in general, but then also, you know how they have these um, serial programs on podcasts now? Aren't those, mm-hmm. those are precursors to that. So there's a kind of a revival right now. And there is, a, there is at least one uh, new radio drama show called The Truth, which is, I, I think, pretty good. But the uh, cool. the other one from the seventies I really love is uh, Sears Radio Theater, which is re- later called Mutual Radio Theater because it was on the Mutual Network. But that would be it was every night uh, during the week, and each night would be a different genre. So they did like westerns on Mondays and comedies on Tuesdays and so forth. And those are those are pretty top notch. The nice thing about the seventies ones is they're trying to touch on real issues in some cases. So Ooh. they they actually have something blatant to say as opposed to just you know hmm. try to scare you and there was no haze code so people could get away with things huh. but anybody who's interested in that stuff uh definitely check it out you don't have to go very far to find it and uh, as christina says there's something you get from these uh these radio dramas that you just can't get from television or movies Well, Christina, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for filling in for Nathan. My pleasure. Uh, Nathan is hosting next week. David, do you remember what he's talking about? It's an article. It's political. I don't remember the name of it. So you have that to look forward to, listeners. Uh, Us talking about a political article that neither David nor I have read (laughs) as of yet. Uh, in the meantime, you can go to our website, which is christianhumanist.org. You can send us an email at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can, uh, we have a Facebook group. David uh, and I are both on Twitter. You're not on Twitter, are you, Christina? Nope. I didn't think you were. Uh, so they'll have to find you via email or on the Christian Feminist Podcast, where you're a frequent, uh, frequent co-host. Yes, that would be great. The Christian Humanist Podcast is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our, our press liaison is Christian Philippic. Our intern is Ellen Peterson. Until next week, for David Grubbs, for Christina Bieber-Lake, for the absent Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be stronger.